Welcome to the First Unitarian Universalist Society of San Francisco's Sunday Morning Worship Service Podcast. For more information or downloads of previous audio services, go to uusf.org. Last Sunday, Reverend Vanessa began worship by referring to those of us who were here in the church doing elbow bumps or bowing to the holy in one another in biblical terms as a holy remnant. And today, the slice of the congregation present is smaller still. Blessings on the courageous choristers who allow our worship not to take place without song. And I especially thank Nancy Hardy's, who this week sent many of us video clips of people in Italy, a country that she and I both love, now under quarantine, but going out on the balconies to sing to one another. As Vanessa and I both know, even in ordinary times, those of us who come in person to worship here are but a slice of the larger constituency we serve. The first time I stood in this pulpit was on the Sunday following 9-11, and there were a thousand people present. Technology had to be used to spread the message into those gathered in the king rooms. Today it's used to try to reach as many as possible who know that worship keeps the spirit alive. In the middle of the 19th century, when infectious disease was rampant, one of Boston's leading physicians was Oliver Wendell Holmes Sr. And he was asked why he faithfully attended worship at his Unitarian church every Sunday. His response was, there is within me a plant called reverence, and it needs watering at least once a week. We come here to renew a basic attitude of gratitude for simply the unmerited gift of being itself in all of its beauty and fragility. Our spiritual capacity for love transcending even isolation. Our commitment to love manifesting itself in community as justice. Watching at home last week, and I hope today, are many who are wise to protect their health, the older part of our community, but also the parents with children like my own daughter, who currently chairs the committee overseeing the spiritual growth programs for the young. You know, typically that brutalist part of our building in a given week will host 3,000 people. And they too ought to be in our thoughts and prayers this morning, praying that we can soon return to welcoming and serving them all in all of their diversity, their artistic creativity, 
their efforts for justice and their spiritual deepening. It's now poignantly poetic that yesterday was Pi Day, 3.14, 2020. We had hoped to have hundreds here after the service for a celebratory luncheon, right, Joe? Your idea. With due precautions taken, of course, sharing pies, the only cost being that of hearing what it takes to keep our worship, our community life, our hospitality for the whole city, our good work going, mostly through pie charts about where the money comes from and where it goes, all in the hope that you might feel moved to be just a bit more generous than you have been in the past and realize a bit more deeply how this institution grounds us all and is still needed in these perilous times. Well, that's not going to happen, except for a few of us who'll stay to have sort of a little symbolic pie together. So it falls to me to share a few highlights. The goal in that operating fund drive this year is at least $600,000, maybe better a little bit more than that. But that is only part of what it takes to keep this church and center going. That costs friends a million dollars more. Fortunately, those who share our building provide almost half of that. The other half comes from grants, special events, and as Richard pointed out, earnings on gifts from the past. It now seems almost inevitable that in the year ahead, those investments will be damaged some, that we will face some downturn in the economy. And so I hope we will do what we can to pay our staff that works so hard for us a fair wage and to meet our other commitments and to maintain this building, which its founders intended to weather many things, earthquakes and epidemics alike, and that we will avoid doing to our investments and those gifts from the past what farmers call eating the seed corn. I think I first heard that phrase when I was a teenager in a small town where many of my classmates lived on farms. And then when I went off to college on a scholarship, I spent my summers working with many of their dads on the ore boats on the Great Lakes, hauling iron ore and coal and limestone for industrial America. I had a good union job, United Mine Workers, and it paid so well that I got out of college debt-free. And while I loved being a deckhand on those summer days, especially on the first mate's watch, four to eight, hosing down the deck as the sun came up, greeting it with a reverence, and then painting until the sun went down in the evening. More often, I was in the galley of the ship, where I learned how to bake and cut pies. The typical crew was 42. So how do you cut six pies into seven slices each? Well, the steward instructed me in the secret. You estimate. 
a seventh. Cut straight across from the tip of that slice and then divide the other two pieces in thirds. Ta-da! This week, as I watched the swoon of the stock market cutting into my retirement savings by at least a seventh or a sixth or, or a third, I recalled how a decade earlier, when I was still serving a church out east, I had the same feeling. And I went to the pulpit, my then congregations, and said, friends, I feel as though I now belong to the preach until you drop school of ministry. But I promise you this, I won't do it to you. They deserved a younger minister and found a brilliant young woman who then demonstrated faithful calm in the face of every emergency, just as our leader does for us. Yet I suspect that this year, some of our most generous donors may be among the most skittish until the markets bounce back, as they inevitably, I eventually will. And so today I address myself to those of you who make the smaller gifts. I'm now your church historian. My next book will be about the influence of this congregation on this city from 1850 to the present. The working title is A Religious Center with a Civic Circumference. Because despite fires and panics and earthquakes and depressions, we here have faithfully upheld a vision of one humanity, one community, transcending differences in background and belief. And like my recent book about the transcendentalists, including our own Star King, it will focus on real people. A few famous, others forgotten and how this church has played a role in twice cleaning out City Hall of corruption and installing reformers. Those Align sisters who gave us the money for the center, they were the grandchildren of Ephraim Burr, the mayor of this city, who cleaned up things in the late 1850s. It'll also focus on forgotten lay people who came here to recharge their spiritual energies and recheck their moral compass, and went on to influence others in ways we can hardly imagine. Let me name just one, Ida Shookman Brown, who was a member here for 50 years, from the 1920s until her death in 1974 at the age of 96, just before her grandson, Jerry Brown, first became the governor of this state, as his father, Pat, had been before him. I take this from a recent book called The Browns of California, the Family Dynasty that Transformed a State and Shaped a Nation by Miriam Pavel, who tells us that Ida was the daughter of a pioneer California pro uh, family of German Protestants who came here to the city as a young woman and fell in love with a dashing young Irish Catholic named Edmund G. Brown who insisted that their children be raised in his faith, 
giving Ida the right to find a church of her own, however. As Pavel says, quote, she auditioned religious leaders in visits to church services all around the city. In the end, she chose First Unitarian, an institution with a reputation for social justice and a storied past. When Ida joined the Unitarian Church, Dr. Caleb S.S. Dutton, known as Sam, was preaching inspired sermons in the lilting accents of his native Britain. He had come to San Francisco from Brooklyn, where he had helped to found the National Association for the Advancement of Colored People. In his first sermon in San Francisco in 1913, he laid out his vision for this congregation. Quote, to identify ourselves with social causes wherever apparent and bring them to full, complete fruition in all just expression. To stand for that complete democracy, which is the demand of idealism. To fight as champions of the God of righteousness every form of oppression, economic, social, or political, and consecrate ourselves to that form of spiritual religion, unquote. Friends, the vision hasn't changed. And as Pavel puts it, this was a vision Ida could embrace. One of her favorite quotes recited often to her family was that one, what doth the Lord require of thee, but to do justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with thy God. For several years, she taught in our Sunday school, despite the fact that her own children were going to catechism elsewhere. I imagine her presiding over Sunday dinners where she asked her own children if what they were being told by the nuns and priests was entirely square with what Jesus himself had, had in mind. She became the leading figure in teaching her son and grandson to start to try to dismantle a structure and culture of white supremacy. Because when Pat became the reformist district attorney of the city, the first thing he did was to dump many of the white Catholic prosecutors and find people of color to take their place. And then he did the same thing as attorney general of the state and as the first democratic governor in decades. Mind you, my own daughter, who helps coordinate low-income health care in California today, wishes, as I do, that perhaps Ida had not passed on so much of her depression mentality to her grandson, leading him to support Prop 13 and resist reinvesting in the state's social services for the poor for so long. And still in the forthcoming recession, I suspect that he was prudent to have built up a state rainy day fund. Which brings us back to our own congregational situation in this rather perilous time. We too, blessedly, have a rainy day fund in the form of those investments and endowments. They're from the gifts generously left to us by those who came before us. Over the years, the mission of this church has inspired members as unsung as 
Ida, to leave us significant gifts, not just of time and energy, as she did, but of substantial invested funds. I think of the late Ed Sheffield, a teacher in the San Francisco schools. Ed was devastated when his wife died. He leaned heavily on our Minister Emerita, Margot Campbell Gross, for grief counseling. They had never had children. He later became a leader in our Saturday men's group. And then, just as I assumed this pulpit of her as senior minister, he went missing. He was nowhere to be found. And thanks to the health privacy laws, no institution would tell us whether they had him or not. And then J.D. Benson, our assistant minister then for pastoral care, brought the gift of her experience. She just wrote him a personal note at his last known address and got a reply from his court-appointed conservator. He had fallen into dementia and isolation, but blessedly we visited him, whether he knew it or not, before he died in nursing care, because it lessened our guilt when he left us and two other charities over a million dollars each. He probably had no idea that his estate would be that large. But bless you, Ed. The gift and the love echo on. So I guess here's what I have to say today. We owe it to Ida not to minimize how wide the influence of this institution is even when there are few people present. And during her time in the Depression and World War II, attendance here was sometimes smaller than it is this morning. We'll still be here, even after this period of closing the center and curtailing worship in the flesh has passed. The question is, as always, with what faith and what influential effect? There's a chance, if we are generous enough in this present moment of crisis, that we could again have an assistant minister for pastoral care and outreach. I happen to know the person under consideration whose gifts would add youth and other diversity to our ministry. And we would give the staff that cost of living increase that they surely deserve. Most recently, I made the last payment on the rather sacrificial gift of $50,000 that I took out of my savings for the capital campaign that we undertook to do some deferred maintenance on our buildings. And this year, since that commitment has relieved my budget to some degree, I've committed to give at least $10,000, a big chunk of my income, to support the ministries and annual operations of this congregation. There are roughly 15 others who will join me at that level or more. 
And when I first came here five years ago, there were only three. So the capacity for greater generosity is here among us. But this, as I say, is a time that requires gifts both great and small. Never imagine that giving $10 a week or a month or maybe just once does not matter. It does. As I've learned to giving to the college that gave me that scholarship that made me capable of writing books and having spiritual influence, my small gifts over the years, participation gifts, as fundraisers called them, helped to show alumni far wealthier than I that many, many cared, and then to strengthen and endow new programs and new outreach. It's hard saying all of this when I can't even see most of you. But if you're watching this online, I hope you really will go to the website and use that green button to pledge or make a donation, great or small, to sustain the future of the First Unitarian Universalist Society of San Francisco. There are moments when we worship together, friends, when my heart just dissolves. All of its defenses drop, and I am overwhelmed with a sense of renewed love, not only for all of you and your faithfulness, but for the gift of life, the unmerited beauty of being, the chance to keep going and caring, and helping to make this world a bit more like it was meant to be. So please know, wherever you are, that you are indeed loved. Though you may be in self-quarantine, you are not alone. You are spiritually and deeply and permanently connected through this remarkable place and its community. So may it be. Amen. Thanks for listening to this podcast of the First Unitarian Universalist Society of San Francisco Sunday Morning Worship Service. For more information or downloads of previous audio services, go to uusf.org. The work of this church in the world is realized through the generous financial support of all who call this place home. Along with the gifts and time and talent, ours is a shared ministry. You have a role to play here. Church membership is open to all. For more information, go to uusf.org.